Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from the Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and I thank you for joining us. It's a bit of a different week this week because it's International Week. Yay! And we all love the first international break of the season because, of course, it's not like it slows down the momentum or the excitement or anything. So we're going to have a slightly different show today. We have Alison Rudd in the studio, who, of course, is so good that we don't need any other physical guests in the studio. And down the line from beautiful downtown Rippenden, it's Ollie Kay. The transfer window has shut in the Premier League. Uh, we'll be reviewing who did good business and who did perhaps not so good business. Still, we're in the midst of an international break, and so let's cast our minds over to England. Ollie, I'm going to start with you. Um, England win 4 0 at Malta, no real surprise there. Uh, and of course, due to the luck of scheduling, um, they play. Slovakia this evening, a win would probably all but wrap up a place in Russia. I want to take you back to one thing about Friday night. There's traveling fans, and some of them were booing and unhappy and, and grumpy. Is this just kind of like par for the course when England go and play a much smaller team that parked the bus and they don't score in the first half that the fans... I mean, you followed England for a long time. You weren't actually in Malta, but you would have seen this before, right? I have and it, it's it's um i would draw a, a clear distinction i think between the, the scenes on friday which i think were just boredom and and slightly good-natured booing if there's, if there's such a thing i don't think it's helpful at all but it was certainly didn't have anything like the sort of hostility or bile that i witnessed uh what was it about 10 years ago playing andorra um in barcelona under steve mclaren and that was that was at a real low ebb and there was real hostility and venom towards the players and towards the manager the malta trip from from what i've heard from fans and from journalists who were there it was just more light-hearted i know there was booing i know it's not what, a, what many people would regard as great support even if you've gone there in numbers but doesn't it just show that people were there you know People disappearing at half time and going to the bars doesn't doesn't it just show that people go along to watch England for the jolly rather than to be entertained on the pitch? Yeah, and if you'd done a poll as everyone left early to go to the bar and said, "What would you rather have had? A thrilling game that where England dropped points against someone they shouldn't drop points against, or a bore fest where they did the job so we know we'll be in Russia?" They'd all say the latter, wouldn't they? They would, and it's. I mean, I'm just staggered really that that, that the. England fans travel in the numbers that they do. And I know there is, I mean, I've written about it a couple of times, I think I'm probably um, intending to again soon, because I, I do think it must just be a, a really fruitless, joyless experience at times going going all around the world watching England. Unless, of course, you're you you know you're doing it for for the fun and, and, and the nights out in the bars and, and that kind of thing. And I wanted to ask about that, and actually I find it more interesting than um, talking about Malta. Uh, no disrespect, but it is a pretty unique phenomenon, I think, among among big nations, and yes, I include England among the big nations, that you do get such numbers and such interest in the national team outside of, uh, outside of major competitions. I've met a couple of these guys, the people sort of who are part of the, whatever it's called, the England Supporters Club or whatever. Do these guys also support a football club who they follow home and away? Because then that I would assume that gets pretty 
pretty expensive and time consuming? Or are they just kind of a person who, you know, might go to home games uh, of their club side, follow the results at a distance, but what they really get excited about is sort of planning those three, four, five away trips with England every year and they go with their friends and it's, you know, sort of a jolly and that's kind of their thing. Just look at the flags. They all support teams in League Two or lower, usually. And this is their this is their chance of, of glamour. I think it might explain part of why you get the mood you sometimes get amongst England fans a game, as was the case in Malta. If you're following your country because it's filling a vacuum that you're not getting at club level, but you know what football in England is like and it's, you know, the saturation coverage on the telly and you might support Morecambe, but you know what it's like to watch Chelsea or Man United or Liverpool on the telly and you know how big crowds are and how passionate it is and it's all rip-roaring fair. And you're trying to replicate that by following England because that's the other thing you have, um, you can be part of legitimately. If you're expecting that to happen, then you're going to be disappointed because what we haven't yet been able to achieve on a regular basis with England is that sense of what you get with the Premier League, that rip-roaring passion. We just don't do it. We're cautious and slightly inhibited and have our issues. And then they You're get fed up. You're talking about the playing style of the team the, that, that is inhibited and has issues and is cautious, right? You're talking yeah, yeah, about... Yeah, it, the, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't mirror right. the Premier League product, yeah, which is what you, they're trying to recreate when they travel with England. That, it's, a, it's a theory. That's a really good point, uh, Ollie. It, <laughs> I hadn't really thought of it, but um, England don't look like a Premier League side. Well, I, to be honest, I, I do think they look like a Premier League team. I, I, I just think they look like a really average Premier League team. And that's probably not surprising because they've got some really average Premier League players in there. Who would people say are the standout players? Would people say Kane and Ali, who haven't really... I mean, Ali hasn't really had a particularly great game for England yet since his since his debut against um, France, or his first start against France. And how much harder must it be when you're playing in that set rather than playing in a really, really, really well-drilled Tottenham team with Ericsson alongside you and with, you know, with, with Dembele and with, with Alderweireld and Vertonghen, a, a, re- a really good team rather than just this sort of mishmash that we have with England. Now, I know that's the, that's the challenge with every national team, but A, I don't think our standout players are as truly brilliant as people like to make out and B you know I think there's a lot of mediocrity in, in the squad and C I don't think they really know how they're going to play and for all that talk of bottom up from the under 16s upwards playing a certain way and play you know England DNA and all that kind of thing I look at the performances of the national team over the last I'd say particularly two years there was a brief period of like progress under Hodgson I'd say the last two years have, have, have felt like real stagnation and like nobody quite knows how the team is going to take shape well you said about the identity and, and I say this as somebody who's as you know covered world football for for some time I kind of feel that this identity argument a, is something that you can throw at everybody first of all English football definitely has an identity England perhaps as a national side you say less so. I, I I don't know to what degree we're talking stereotypes here, but but if you want to go there, Spain definitely, and they've been very open about this, tweaked or changed their identity or at least the type of football that that they play. There's no question about it, and it happened some some ten fifteen years ago. Um, Holland have maintained their identity, and we see how well that they're doing. You know, when we talk about 
Brazil's identity, what are we talking about? Are we wheeling out, you know, samba, football, stereotypical nonsense? And if so, how do you, you know, explain the, the, the Scolari Dunga years? Who is it who talks about, is, is it Ashworth? Who, who brings up this identity argument? Or is it slightly foolish, out-of-touch people amongst our colleagues and ex-pros? No, that, that, that identity talk and DNA talk and all that kind of thing, that and philosophy, etc. That all comes from um, that all comes from you know fr- from Ashworth and and from okay. the FA. And, sure. and so, so do me a favor when you next see this guy, and there's a lot of questions you could ask him about different mm-hmm. things. Um, and as I learned from when Dicko sat down with him last year, uh, he was not best man at Ad Boothroyd's wedding, and or the other way around, and nor is he married to Ad Boothroyd, as I discovered. But um, how are you going to establish an identity when you work with the players for a couple days, three or four times a year? I mean, the identity of the players, surely, is formed by what they learn at their clubs and well, in their academies. Can I answer that? Because I went to St. George's Park and I had a, yes. several hours in the company of Steve Holland, who's the new permanent number two with England. And you can be sure he's not going to tell me things that is different to what him right. and Southgate believe Sorry, as a pair, Just to right? explain so people know who he is, Steve Holland, longtime Chelsea assistant coach. And the nice thing about you hanging out with Steve Holland is that he's new there, right? So he can't go and take responsibility for stuff that happened before. He's, he's, he's not going to apologise for it, no. exactly. No, but I got on my hobby horse about the Iceland game and all that we could have learned from Iceland. And he sort of cut me dead and said, hang on a minute, you look at any Premier League game, there is no English identity in those matches. There's no way of playing. If you watch the Premier League, then you can say, that's how England play. The players play the way they play because of the managers they have and the teammates they have. And all you can do if you're setting up the England team is make sure you ask each individual player not to do anything that they're not asked to do at club level because, you, as you just rightly pointed out, Gab, they have them so little of the time. And this was a mistake, I think, that Roy Hodgson made was, and maybe before maybe him as well. Is you have a chat with Steve Holland once in a while, yeah? Well, it's, it does sound like they're not talking about the same stuff because what Hodgson, I think, would do would think, oh, my goodness, you know, I spe- all people see is me at matches, watching matches. I look like I'm being paid a lot of money to just sit and have corporate hospitality and watch the best games you can get. So when you do have the players, you go a bit hyper and you think you can create something or change something. Roy would ask players to do things that were slightly different, not because they were necessary, but because he wanted to prove that he was being a manager. He was being a coach and he was moulding, taking a player and making it do something slightly different to fit in to the England model. And what Holland was saying was, you don't do that. You don't have the players long enough. You just make sure you put them into the right places and say, do what you do with your club. Don't do anything different. Be comfortable. Be comfortable. Please tell us what you like doing and that's what you'll do. It's exactly what Fabio Capello said when he was England manager. There is another route that that you can take. It's the route actually that that the Conte took when when he became Italy manager, where he's he effectively said, "Okay, I'm not going to call up the best players. I'm going to call up these guys who are team players. They're not going to make issues for me. Um, they're eminently moldable. They're excited to be here, and I'll always call them up even if they're playing badly." And I'm going to go and just hammer them with the ethos of of our style and our identity. And I'm going to do it that way, even if it means leaving out better players. It was also easier for Conte to do because he had a horrendous generation of of players. He didn't have much talent to call on. I'm not sure that that's a good way to go either, is it? 
I wouldn't have thought so, unless you've got the the clout that somebody like Conte has, or the clout that somebody like you know Guardiola or Mourinho, a world class manager, the kind of manager that England cannot even begin to contemplate appointing these days. Conte could say, right, we are going to play my way. We're going to do it this way. You know, I'm not talking about formations. I'm talking about the system, how it, how it would work, what he expects of them, and. This is absolutely not anything against Southgate or against Roy Hodgson or against sort of many of their less wonderful predecessors. But these guys are learning on the job. Well, not Hodgson so much, but these guys are learning on, on the job. Southgate, does he have that sort of clear philosophy of, of this is how we're going to play? This is, you know, we're England. You're my England. We're going to play this way. I don't think there is that real sort of firm view of how we're going to play. And, and, and if there is... I didn't think until the other night that it would involve going to Malta and playing with... I mean, if we're talking about a team building around possession, as, as England have talked about over the last few years, to have the spine of the team, really, being Joe Hart and goal, Phil Jones and Gary Cahill, central defence, Henderson and Livermore sitting in midfield. It's not a team that's, that's all about being wonderfully composed on the ball and, and about shifting around and being patient and, and playing with great guile and sophistication. What are we building towards? What are we moving towards? And that is what I just haven't seen with England over the last couple of years. Alison, I want to ask you about this because this is something that just just really befuddles me and kind of annoys me. Now, you were at the press conference yesterday mm-hmm. uh, on Sunday. I pick up today's times and and I see that Southgate's talking again about how he needs to defend his players, about patriotism and love of country. I'm just absolutely flabbergasted that these issues come up, that somebody goes and actually asks and and wastes time in a press conference with an England manager, especially one who will actually give you, you know, some some answers. He's not, you know, you can criticize Southgate for a lot of things, but not being uh, unwilling to talk and engage isn't one of them. I I remember years ago, I think it was after, after McLaren screw up, there was some absolute tool uh, of an MP who in, wanted to do something in Parliament, criticizing the players or whatever. Uh, did, how, how did this come up again? I mean, seriously, I don't, you're not going to name names. Nobody wants to out colleagues. Were there really people there who were, who were asking about it, questioning the patriotism of the players because of their performance? No. Or, no, or is this more, the front of the book spinning things again? No, it was more, it was a really interesting discussion and Southgate was very eloquent it was less about ooh let's 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 ask are oh, the players patriotic enough gareth it wasn't couched in those terms it was more a case of why does this keep happening to england teams why when either the result or the performance is seen to be disappointing that the narrative always comes back to do they care enough about it are, are they overpaid are they spoiled does it matter to them when they put the england shirt on because it does seem most of the time to a lot of the people who were jeering in Malta, for example, that they would they were watching players who play better for their club than for their country. And all anybody really wants is for England to be greater than the sum of their parts, not less than. You don't want to see the famous names in the Premier League just looking like insipid versions of what you see week in, week out. And therefore the only the only way to go with the conclusion is for some reason it doesn't it doesn't seem to matter so much to them. It might be false logic. And the reason we talked about it for quite a long time was that Southgate was eloquent in explaining that, if anything, they're probably guilty of caring too much. And if you care too much, then you might 
be inhibited in how you play and freeze sometimes. And he said he'd played alongside teammates for England who who didn't care enough and would pull out with fake injuries and so on that just didn't didn't want it. Oh, he said he's, he's, he's did picked. He he's picked when he didn't did name, he name names. names. He didn't name names. But we all know who he's talking about, right? We could, you, well, you could, again, you, you, look, yes. you could, okay, you could make conclusions ahead. that yeah. might not be fair, but you could look at the players he played with who didn't get very many caps, for sure. But he said, you know, in this case, he's picked 28 players and they've all turned up and they're all keen. And that isn't always the case in, in England or in other countries. They want to be there. Southgate even tried to explain why we have this strange patriotism here. You know, he, about our island mentality, the fact we have an aggressive form of patriotism. I think England is, is a very, very sort of confused concept these days. I think Britain is a very, very confused concept. When I see other countries, I do see a sort of, you know, we'll run through brick walls mentality. Germany, they, they have a really, I mean, it's not a case of running through brick walls in terms of, you know, Terry Butcher bleeding headbands, etc. But there's a real sort of sense of we are, we are Germany. We believe, you know, with France, it seems to ebb and flow with remarkable consistency. It seems, to, you know, they seem to either all hate the flag or all love the flag, depending on how the first game of any tournament goes but or who their coach is. But when I report on England, it just all feels a bit wishy-washy to me. You know, I often feel like I'm watching, you know, brand England and, and let's make sure the right people are saying the right things and, and in front of the right sponsors boards rather than, you know, people speaking from the heart. Well, I, I find the whole, as some, an outsider who's lived here a long time, I just find this whole thing uh, just, just absolutely fascinating. And the, the weight that certain media have over England, um, it seems bizarre to me. I, I get it. I mean, I think the amount of coverage England get and, and the amount of interest relative to the amount in other countries, especially during qualifying, especially when doing such a humdrum qualifying like this. I mean, my country, Italy, we played Spain on Saturday night. So we were all excited for that because, you know, it's Spain. Who have you played that you got excited about? The old enemy? I mean, seriously, in this qualifying group, right? And the other thing, which is maybe even damaged England, is when's the last time England came close to not qualifying and the last time England had a big nation in the group? Yeah, no, they've 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 got lucky stroke. Well, I don't know whether you feel the jeopardy situation would be better. But I would suspect not. It's dampened the enthusiasm, I think, because know, it, it just feels like a procession, and it, you know, it, Slovakia, it does, Slovenia, Scotland. It's a very long procession until the first knockout game of the tournament, and then it goes. Puff. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's move on to something that some of us find a lot more interesting, the transfer window. I'm looking at, as you know, uh, a little bit like that that great clip from Arsenal TV. I don't talk about spend. I talk about net spend. I'm just looking at uh, this list that uh, our producer Charlie put together. It's quite remarkable, or maybe it's not. If I look at Manchester City and Manchester United are are roughly equal, both around the £138 million mark, and this is, we're talking net spend here. Then there's a gap to Chelsea. Uh, 
right around 106. And then there's Everton, well behind, but they are the fourth highest by by net spend. I, Ali, I just want to start with you, just just about Chelsea. The the, the perception Conte's Conte's un, unhappy and, and and grumpy, and for whatever reason they didn't get Barkley and Oxley Chamberlain, and especially I think Llorente, probably the most serious player they missed out on. Is there a sense that you know if you're Conte, you have every right to be grumpy that they didn't go and spend more money and get more bodies in? Um, well, I don't know, because, because uh, as you say, they, they they did end up spending rather a lot of money, £100 million net, um, but that was done on the basis of an expectation that they would sell Costa and probably recoup a lot of that, and, and, and they've been left with a, an issue there. You look at the sums they spent on Rudiger, Bakayoko, Morata, Zappa Costa, Drinkwater, that's five big deals, plus a reserve goalkeeper. I would think that the issue really is not the quantity of money spent or the number of bodies coming in, but the identity of the players, because as Matt Hughes has written a couple of times over the summer, there seems to be this real sense of discord between Conte and, and, and the board about, about what type of players they, that they should be targeting and whether it's, you know, whether it should be older players or whether it should be younger players with resale value. And, and in the end, I mean, you look at, you look at it and it's, it, well, it's a bit of both, but it smacks of compromise. Chelsea have had wonderfully talented young English players that they've either let go or, or they've allowed to stagnate in their academy or on a series of loans. Chalabar being being a, an obvious one, but there are very, very talented English and non-English young players that they have that they've loaned out yet again. I don't know. Chalabar's what, 22, 23? Mm-hmm. He'd been there all year with Antonio Conte. He'd done the thing where he'd been abroad, right? To other clubs, to other big clubs. I don't know what else this guy could do other than you look at him and you have a manager who says, you know what, I don't think you're as good as these other people. I mean, I, this assumption yeah. that because somebody comes to the youth team, they're going to be great. And I think Barcelona, the ultimate example of it, right? We all talk about how wonderful La Masia is, and yet the last La Masia product to be a regular at Barcelona is effectively Sergio Busquets, and that was, and he graduated from La Masia 10 years ago. I, I don't know that that really follows. But Chelsea's youth setup by common consent has been probably the best in Europe in terms of quality of players coming through over the last um, three or four years. When I say coming through, I mean not coming through, to be honest. I mean, the players that they have playing in, in, in the youth league, the players that they have going on, it's, it's a vast, vast stockpile of really good, talented young players. And, and you get to the point where he needs players and specifically English players to thicken out his squad and they end up thinking well okay let's go for drink water let's go for Oxley Chamberlain let's let's go for Barkley and I'm not demeaning those three players I, I think they're all I think they're all good players but but I would have thought if ever there was a summer to be integrating people into the into that squad, it, it, it was this one, and, and they didn't do it. But this is this is not Conte has no vested emotional interest no. in the uh, youth setup at Chelsea. He did, he wasn't there when it was began to get good at its job. His only interest is in winning the title again or doing well in Europe, proving that he's a top class manager. And I was at a football writers event where Arsene Wenger was on stage, and he said, "I know I get pilloried." If I bring in someone who's no one's heard of, but I think he's promising and I'm prepared to risk him in the team. 
you can you can take you can take sides on that. Is, is that his job? Is that his job to have this holistic view to think about the club as a whole? To have been there so long that he cares about the youth team, or are you a manager that comes in? You don't care what happens in, in, in a year's time. You don't care what happened two years ago. You only care about what you think you can do to win. And why what... would you risk dropping a point or two points or whatever you drop these days <laughs> if if you bring in somebody that someone else has told you was really brilliant in the youth team? I have to laugh, but Arshavegger is the worst possible example of that because unlike Conte, he knows he's never, ever going to get sacked. He could set fire to the Emirates and go and, and, and dance on, on the, the, the broken down statue of Herbert Chapman. Whatever the reason and he would for not the... Whatever no, the sorry. reason for it is, but they also, do have a different yeah. approach. Okay, yeah, and also he brings these guys through, and they're generally not particularly good, and then they move on, or they become Kieran Gibbs type figures for for ten years who contribute very little to the first team, and then he still goes and buys his best young players, whether it's Ramsey or Walcott. So I don't know. I just think that this I'm not, like I'm not defending. No, no, no. But what I'm saying is, I don't see how you can compare. Conte or indeed Pep Guardiola, who we haven't spoken about, but they've also done really well at youth level. They've also spent an enormous amount on the youth academy. They've brought through many players. The object of an academy is to produce players who, if they're really, really good, they play for your first team. If they're not really, really good, then you've formed a a professional footballer who you can then sell on. I, I think most people would agree that Germany produces a lot of very good young players. And most people would agree that Bayern Munich are a very powerful, rich and powerful club in Germany. The bar to get into the Bayern Munich first team is set very, very high, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I And that's the reason why there aren't a million Bayern youth kids, even though they have an enormous youth academy and all the German best practice and Raf Honigstein and Das Reboot and all this nonsense, right? But it's that difficult to break into the first team. You look at the top eight or ten teams in Europe, which I think most people would agree, that's where Chelsea are, that's where they want to be, right? And ask yourself, how many of these have homegrown youngsters, say, under the age of 23, 24, who are starting for them? And other than Marcus Rashford, maybe Kimpembe at Paris Saint-Germain, who's sort of in and out and looks very good, I can't think of too many others. It's really, really difficult. Football's become so polarized. Football was not this polarized when when the class of 92 came through. There wasn't this enormous talent gap between the top clubs and everybody else. So it's actually really, really difficult. A 19, 20, 21-year-old has to be exceptionally good if he's homegrown to go and get significant minutes at a top club. I, I totally agree with that. I really, really agree with every bit of that. But I think when you are hoovering up as much talent as Chelsea are, as Manchester City are, both locally, nationally and globally. You've got more brilliant, talented young players than you know what to do with. There should be an even greater emphasis on trying to make those players the best you can you can be. I know those players get very well compensated but for, for accepting the diminishing prospects that they might have if they go to Chelsea or if they go to Manchester City. But it's, it's to me, there's something missing when... when when well, there are, you appoint when a manager. So you appoint a manager who, yeah. who at the interview level, when you're appointing a manager, you want them to have a connection with the academy. Mm. Like Klopp has clearly said at all crucial meetings, I care about developing local talent, and mm. he does, and that seems to be part of the model, and it it seems to be what the entire club wants. Whereas somewhere like Chelsea, the priority is is almost like there's um. 
a wall between the academy and the and the first team. They're two different projects, both That's of which both Henry of which should piece. be very successful, and the club want them to be successful. They don't necessarily say they have to work together. All right, um, we we spent far more on Chelsea than I expected, so the rest of our conversation is going to be rather cursory. I apologize. I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about these clubs again. Ali, quickly on on, on Manchester City, because seems to me like they spent a lot on defensive players after last year spending a lot on on attacking players, very broadly speaking. He effectively has four-fifths of his back five who are new, counting Vincent Company, who obviously didn't play much last year. Does it mean, again, another year of major transition where these people get to know each other and build the defensive chemistry? Is that something that City fans should budget for? If you look at the the defence that they've built, if, if we can say they've built it or, or assembled, or the defenders they've assembled. I mean, it's not its not even very... Yeah, I mean, see, the, see, the full-backs see. are very, very attack-minded, aren't they? And it's, and it's, and it's clearly a, a, you know, a system that's as much designed to attack as defend. The risks that they take in, in committing so many blows forward will probably be cancelled out by the, the, the number of goals that they score. And, and you know, had they managed to get Sanchez as well, I don't know how on earth they would have made that work um, because I, I think they all, I mean, I know it's the biggest cliche, but I, I think they already had an embarrassment of riches up front and, and they really do. But the back end of their team, it still looks a little bit flimsy to me. And um, But then again, I remember thinking the same of Guardiola's Barcelona team. They, they, they didn't do too badly, did they? No, they did all right. One thing I worry about is if something happens to Fernandinho, then... You're looking at Yaya Torre, I think, at this stage, or since I assume Gundogan will be will be injured. Um, as in Manchester United, uh, they spent uh, a lot of money. Obviously, Lukaku, Matic, Lindelof. I think in, in some ways, I've been told Lindelof is more of a long-term project anyway, but they certainly have enough centre-backs. This feels more like a Mourinho team, and there's the added bonus of Slatan coming back in the new year. I think yeah. No, if you look at the uh, list of ins and outs at Manchester United, it's it's amongst the classiest of them all. For did a start, they win? for did a start, they win? It, it's it's neat and tidy. Did they both win? In ins and outs, probably they the did. Transfer probably, trophy? yeah, probably they did. I think so, because there's an intangible. You can look at a list and you can look at money spent, but there's that that magical factor of are they now complete? And they sort of do look complete. I think one of the reasons Mourinho looks like the Mourinho of old, he looked, he looked, it was almost unrecognisable personality-wise last season, is that he's, he's done something clever and crafty in that he's got Matic from Chelsea. And every time Matic puts in a decent shift, I think that'll make, that does, it makes the whole team feel like they've just, you know, got one finger in the air towards the south of the country. And the timing of Zlatan's um, return... If, not that he left, but you know what I mean, uh, was perfect. Lukaku started like he was on fire. Right. You can spend a lot of money and it can look like you're being mercenary, but United have made it, made it look like it's been thought about. Well done, United. You've won the transfer trophy. Um, Everton spent a lot of money. Obviously, they, they recouped a lot of money from Lukaku, but it's still a big fee. We're talking about Pickford, Keane, guys like that. I... My big question mark is Allison's mate Sigurdsson and this idea of Sigurdsson and Rooney together with a striker up front. It, it doesn't seem to make too much sense to me. Am, am, am I wrong? No, I, I agree. I, I, I think the, the signings of, of Klassen and Sigurdsson seem to me to suggest that either they, they're mitting against the Rooney thing not working or they're convinced that Rooney's going to be... Um, a brilliant sense forward all season and a brilliant number nine and get them the goals that Lukaku would would otherwise have got. And, and um, 
I'm not sure either of those things is true. Yeah. Early in the summer, they, they signed Pickford and, and Keane and, and Sandra Ramirez, who I hear very good things about, and, and Klassen and Sigurdsson. They're all really good players, but I, I'm not quite sure yet how it's all going to fit together and whether there's enough goals in the team and whether there's enough um, speed in the team. Because yeah. you know, Speed-wise... Speed's a big one, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they're going to be very reliant on Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who I think is a really good, really, really good prospect. They're going to need a lot of speed around um, around Sigurdsson, around Rooney, around uh, whoever else. And I think Sigurdsson is, a, is an excellent player. I think he's the best of those three. We're never going to get through all these clubs. Um, We're not, Gab. We're not. We're really not. Because you guys are all talking too much. No, just kidding. No, because we had the very insightful and long England discussion. uh, And we spent far too much time talking about Chelsea. But So maybe what we'll do is this week we'll just limit it to uh, the top 10 clubs by net spend. And then we'll do the bottom 10. And and that way we can discuss Arsenal next week. Um, uh, I want to stay with you because next up is a club that I kind of feel you've been rather critical of in the past. Watford spent nearly 50 million in net spend, uh, fifth highest in the Premier League. And they seem to have changed their their approach. They spent a lot of money on on Richarlison. And weirdly, they started signing all these um, English or or at least British players uh, from um, Andre Gray to Will Hughes. And of course, they got Marco Silva, who I think most would agree is a very good signing as a manager. But what's your take? Does it make sense to bring in all these all these English guys, or are there too many? Strange that they've gone from having very, very few English players to having suddenly a lot, and 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 in similar areas of the team, cleverly and Hughes and um, Chalabar. You know, I, I don't think that is going to be their 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 three. Um, so it, it may but, just be Chalabar at five million's good business, yeah. Oh, Chalabar at five million. I, I know. Um, I know people might have thought I was going over the top in trumpeting him as a as a Chelsea player earlier in the, in the discussion but I, I think he will be one of the signings of the summer I really do um, and you know maybe he needs a, another season to really get to that level but I think that is an excellent deal and um, one of those that a lot of other clubs will be thinking well why didn't we do that one I have felt at times that the whole thing has looked a bit too transient in terms of such a lot of players coming and going every year the managers coming and going every year it's worked well for them but but they've They've lacked a sort of core of particularly English players. Particularly, you know, I, I do think that counts for something if, if they're good enough. I think few people would have expected that of the three promoted clubs, the two that spent the most, neither one would be called Newcastle. Brighton and Huddersfield, I'm lumping them together. I probably shouldn't. So they're, they're sixth and seventh in, uh, in terms of net spend. Alison, the obvious reaction is that you go up, you suddenly have more money, you need to upgrade your squad quickly. This is where you roll the dice, right? Uh, oh, you do. You do. You, although, you, 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 although you funnily do. enough, it's not what Burnley did when they came up the last time. They spent very little money. They went back down, laughed all their way to the parachute payments, came back up, still spent very little money and stayed up. But of course, they have a wonderful gravelly-voiced manager and <laughs> neither, I think both... And uh, no money. Um, if you've got money, you spend it. Brighton are really quite high up on the your list of clubs ranked by net spend, and I can't work out how they've got there. According to, to this, they didn't um, make any money back. They obviously spent a lot of money yeah, on, no, there's, there's no, on Matt there's Ryan. No in, Davey Proper was $10 million. Izquierdo was, I think, 13 or $14 million. It's just if you see that, 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 that they're that high up on the list, I don't know, you need to, I would then go to look at the list and I'd expect to be slightly more excited than I am. 
It looks a okay. bit. It looks Can, a bit. It right. looks a bit panicked. Allison, I'll leave you on my analytics nerds friends. Yeah, they love Pascal Gross. They okay. love the guy. He's this tremendous free kick taker. He's super intelligent. I'll, I'll be really. Be really curious to see how he does. Obviously, only two and a half million pounds from uh, um, from from Ingolstadt. What about Huddersfield? Because they have a very distinctive way of of playing. They blew basically all their money on uh, on Tom Ince and uh, and, and and Steve Mounier um, and, and Aaron Moy. Obviously, Aaron Moy they they kept them around. I think he's been tremendous. I don't think anybody's gonna have an argument there. And Mounier's look good too. If you look at the Huddersfield list, that makes far more sense to me. Because you can get a sense, all they're doing is augmenting the good things about their um, their campaign to get to the playoff final. You feel like they've kept their identity. Aaron, I call him Aaron Moo. I don't know why I do that, but um, because it's Udders Field. And anyway, um, <laughs> hilarious. I know, She's but yeah, no. Week. But you mean that? You see, in a, in a way, are you say he, he he was on loan and now they've bought him. I think that's hugely significant in so many ways because when you're on loan as the player, you're also, you're also as the club, you're auditioning to the player as well. The fact that he wants to stay, it just proves that the manager's got it right. He's building the team around the right player. I think that's that's excellent business on so many hey, levels. Um, we'll do one more club and then we'll leave the rest for, for next week because the rest there's fewer big clubs among the rest, so they're less interesting and we talk about them less. No, just kidding. Um, Ollie... West Brom, they spent $35 million. I kind of really like the players they got. And I don't know if, if as I get older, I'm becoming pulisified. Um, but, <laughs> but Jay Rodriguez, if he's fit, I think is a very serviceable player. Gareth Barry, given the way they play, where he only has to run five yards either side and lump the ball, that's fine. Kieran Gibbs, I'm not a great fan of, but if you want a guy who's, who's sort of a defensive fullback, great. Ahmed Hagazi, I think we're seeing already, is an absolute monster. But um, the guy I mentioned is Oliver Burke, because okay, mm-hmm. people may not be familiar with this guy, but he, a lot of people only follow the Premier League, like me, had no idea who he was. And then all of a sudden, Leipzig, who are sort of the, the sort of the darling hipster team for the way they work, but at the same time, of course, hated by many because they're the spawn of the devil. They signed him for a lot of money. And now West Brom bring him back, suggesting to me that the great Leipzig-Burke experiment has failed. But obviously, he's somebody who's highly rated. What do you make of this? Have you seen the guy? Should he be on a Pulis team? Because it seems very, very different from the way Leipzig play football. I, I didn't see him at all playing for Leipzig, and shame on me, but um, I'm sorry. I, I, I just didn't, didn't play I, that I don't much. watch Leipzig every week. I know, I know there are people who appear to, but I, I don't. I saw him more when he was playing at Forest, and he looked like a really exciting raw and yet intelligent young talent and I, i'm just, you know I, I was really excited when he went to um, leipzig and I, I hoped that would so, you know i hoped he would spend a couple of years there and come back as a real star you not, know, not I'll, excited I'll, enough I'll to look him up on youtube every five minutes no oh is that what people do when they say those? <laughs> those, those um now so, um, right i mean but, he's added good but whether they feel what he wants to do but he's 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 added some 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 real players and hasn't really yeah, lost yeah. anybody and you haven't mentioned uh, Krakowiak, who was who was a you know, remarkable. Uh, no, no, no. He was he was terrible. I thought he was terrible last year. But yeah, obviously okay. he's all, he's he's a very pedigreed player, and he came on loan mm-hmm. from Paris Saint Germain. Again, suggesting to me that maybe he'll vary the way he plays even more. I don't know. I would think so, but uh, but I think you know ultimately, are we going to be looking at a classic Pulis team still, but with sort of more exotic adornments? I mean, we, we saw Sam Allardyce 
make a similar journey probably during his time at Bolton. And I think you look at the way they they started, they, they they look like a really decent, solid team with with a bit more unpredictability than before. And um, yeah, it, it looks like they're um, they're in a good place. All right, we're going to pick up the rest next week, and we'll be talking about the likes of uh, Liverpool, Spurs, Arsenal, Palace, and of course Leicester. How about some quick hits? Arsene Wenger admitted that he was hesitant about sticking around at Arsenal for, quote, personal reasons, and uh, said he had contact with Paris Saint-Germain, even. Um, That's if I read our news story correctly. I'm pretty sure I did. Ollie, should we read into this, that his love of Arsenal is so strong that he turned down the chance to go to Paris Saint-Germain, or were they maybe just calling him to say hello, or did we even just learn anything that we didn't already know? I think we know that that, that he, he gets offers or, or at least um, inquiries all the time, and particularly when he's um, prevaricating over a new contract as he was at the back end of last season. And he, I think he likes letting people know that he was wanted and, and letting people know that he's put Arsenal ahead of uh, of other clubs. And you know, at a time when people are questioning whether he's he's in it purely for the wrong reasons or, or whether he's sort of managing decline at Arsenal. I think, I think it's nice in some ways for him to be able to say, oh, look, I, if I really wanted to, I, I could take an easy option and, and, and disappear to Paris. But um, maybe he would have been better taking that option. Holland are in serious danger of not qualifying for the World Cup following a heavy defeat at the hands of France. And listen, they weren't at the Euros either. Do you miss them when they're not at a major competition? Or do you just like, well, hey... If you're so bad that you can't even get into these expanded Euros, then good riddance. There were lots of people who had a crush on Holland in the 70s and the 80s. They were the team that um, a lot of people I knew who couldn't bear, they were English but couldn't bear to be English. They'd buy rude hullet wigs and just, you know, go a bit berserk with the whole Dutch thing. Total football, wow, wow, and they were orange. If they're not good enough, no, I don't care. And I never was in love with Holland anyway. And I love the way that the women's team do play technically good almost total football and are a much better watch than their men we had a piece in the game this week where they kind of argued that oh they made a mistake they should have appointed ronald koeman of course of course i thought you'd agree with that uh james gearbrandt has a fascinating piece today in the game about the all-important fifa rankings system because they determine world cup seeds and you can game the system or play the system by not playing friendlies or at least playing the right kind of friendlies. Ollie, FIFA rankings and seedings get much, much criticized also because, you know, you're comparing teams from every corner of the globe um, and also teams be- between different confederations face each other less and less than than ever. So I have no idea how else you're going to rank these guys, but you tell me you're a very clever guy. So do you have a better solution than the current FIFA ranking system? Well, I'm certainly not as clever a guy as James Gearbrand, judging by that piece. Um, well, he, the, doesn't, he um, doesn't come up with a better system either. He just no, talks but, about this Romanian no. dude who offered his services to the FA to get them better rankings. Yeah, it, I, I, I think it's a really, a really good piece. And it, it's, it's um, can I think of a better ranking system? I, to be honest, I, I don't care enough about that. To, <laughs> uh, and, and, and any ranking system will be slightly flawed. Slightly flawed. And I think the one we've got is, you know, is is all right. You always get these these sort of complete discrepancies, but but I, I think it's all right. And um, 
what I think is is amusing really is is the suggestion that England are, are sort of being cheated by the by by others who play the system more carefully. Well, other countries might be more cynical in the way they play the system. Switzerland, for example, but. Let's be honest, are the FA always desperate to manipulate England's rankings so that England have got the best chance? Or do they just want a full Wembley every time? Ben Woodburn scored an absurdly good goal, and if you haven't seen this, I invite you all to see it, to lead Wales past Austria and back in contention for a spot in the playoffs. Um, Alison, he's 17, and uh, he's a Liverpool player, and Jurgen Klopp apparently made a big deal out of wanting to keep him there rather than sending him on loan. I'm a bit uneasy given that Liverpool haven't a ton of forwards and attacking players. Did Klopp slightly miss a trick there? No, and no, because partly this is driven by his parents, Ben's parents. Um, He's still their child, he's still a child, and if they didn't want him to be wholly integrated into the grown-up system, he was prepared to go along with that, so he's he's been living at home. Um, If you send a player out on loan, they have to buy into the new club's philosophy, and it might not suit him you can't say it's gone wrong because he comes on and after a few seconds scores a wonder goal he's clearly well adjusted and life is good for him and you've got a trusting clock when it comes to young players france were held to a nil nil home draw by luxembourg uh ollie any broader meaning in this i mean it, it was the first time france had failed to beat luxembourg since um 1913 or 1914 perhaps when the world was a very different place or is it just that if you park the bus and put a lot of people in the six-yard box, uh, sometimes you get rather lucky? I suspect it's the latter. I did, I did hear that, that um, Luxembourg played very intelligent and, and very impressively uh, within certain parameters, and that France were awful. I, 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 just find, I find it a fairly hilarious result. I, find, I found Malta nil, England won with three minutes remaining fairly hilarious, but France nil, Luxembourg nil really is hilarious. I mean, France... Yeah, if this was England, you know, we, we would all be very angry about it. But France are, are going on the right track, and this is just a sort of ludicrous result. But but it's, it does it does certainly raise questions about the uh, the game plan of of a manager who is not the most popular, and whether he can get the best out of a wonderfully talented um, collection of players. Yeah, I'm still praying for France to finish second in their group and go have a playoff against Ireland. How awesome would that be? And then an Ireland player going and handling the ball. Maybe Seamus Coleman just going, just fisting the ball over Hugo Lloris' head. Game back his first his game back, break. exactly. Oh, wow. Well, the timing will be a wrap. He'll be, he'll be back yeah, he'll by be November. He'll be back for that game, for that playoff, yeah. yeah. He'll be for back just playoff, for that. There yeah. you go. Wayne Rooney was charged with uh, drunk driving last week. Um, there's obviously a lot of issues around this, but uh, I think a very simple question. If I made, forget what Wayne Rooney makes, even if I just made 20 grand a week, I would pay some dude in a limo, perhaps one of those with a little mini bar in the back, to drive me and my friends around when I have a night out. Why doesn't Rooney do that? In fact, why doesn't every single professional footballer do that? Uh, We hear stories about them using Uber and calling cabs. Why not just get a freaking driver? Well, I think in this particular instance, probably if you're Wayne Rooney and you're that famous and that rich and you've got time off, which you've rarely had in your career, you want to be one of the lads. You want to act like one of the lads and having a limo waiting for you outside is not being one of the lads. And he just, that's what happens. You can't switch identity like that and it backfired horribly for him. Wasn't he out with Wes Brown? 
I'm assuming Wes Brown can probably afford a limo. Probably not one as nice as Rooney's. If you but. go, if you go to the bubble bar, I mean, it's it's pretty. You know, that sort of. It's just. It's it, you're going to be with the public. You want to pretend. You're just the fantasy when you're that famous is to be not that famous. All right, then get a Prius, okay? But still have some guy to drive you around and avoid all these situations. All right, okay, I have a question for you. Spain's thrashing of Italy. All the journos were drooling about it at the England presser. Um, but it was Italy who took one hell of a beating, didn't they? Uh, yes, it was a combination of uh, Italy, uh, because of the way this group works, Italy basically needed to win. A draw wasn't good enough because Spain's goal difference was, even though they were level on points, Spain's goal difference was a lot better. So Giampiero Ventura decided, I know what we'll do. We'll go there and uh, we'll shock them by playing a 4-2-4 system and going at them. And they're not going to expect that because nobody ever attacks Spain that way. Yeah, the problem is when you play 4-2-4, you're just leaving two guys in midfield and one of them gets booked after five minutes. And the other team has Isco and David Silva and uh, and, and Sergio Busquets and Andres Iniesta and Marco Asensio. It's just such a, a mismatch. If on top of that, uh, Isco turns in a completely unreal performance, yeah, you will get absolutely destroyed. Also, if you go out and you play two fullbacks who've played exactly zero minutes of league football since May, uh, that's probably not a good thing either. But um, all credit to Spain. It's it's really remarkable to me how he's integrated the newcomers, the new generation, how how united, how much like a team they look, despite all the, the Real Madrid-Barcelona thing. Early on in that game, it was kind of neat. The, it was at the Bernabeu. Gerard Pique got booed the first few times he touched the ball, and then you had... All these other fans were trying to drown out the boos, and and it really is the way Andres Iniesta said before the game. He said, you know, for one night, the Bernabeu will be my home, and, you know, I expect to be treated as such, and, and they were. So, well done, Spain. For me, one of the top two, three teams in the world right now. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, many, many thanks to my excellent guest today. It's Alison Rudd, and from lovely Rippenden... It's Ollie Kay. Remember, uh, you can pay just eight pounds and you get an eight-week trial of The Times. You can search The Times online. Uh, you'll get access to our content. And if you're one of those people who can't read and just likes looking at videos of footballers, hey, you're in luck too. Because this season, you can access highlights of every single game in the Premier League, Champions League, Europa League, and FA Cup. Seems like a pretty darn good deal to me. The Premier League will be back with Manchester City versus Liverpool. And uh, we're going to be back next Monday on The Game Podcast. Till then, bye-bye. The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. 